0: Yo, it's your boy, Roy, and it's another episode of SYNC Gems. Today, we have Jason Rudd. He is the executive producer of Level 77 Music, an award-winning company. He has over 25 years of experience in the music industry. He has an amazing story. This guy's legit. He is... OG. He went through so many phases in the music industry. He even got into a lawsuit when he was uh, 24, 24 years old. Imagine getting into a lawsuit about music, about your, your work in 24 years old. Anyway, he tells that story. We go into things that are really important like sub-publishing deals what do they mean for the companies what do they mean for the labels we really i really pressed as much information as i could about this topic because this is a topic that i don't know enough about like what do deals between labels and and sub-publishers like the big three look like what uh, does it mean about sync fees? What does it mean about sales? What does it mean? Because I know a lot of people tell you, yeah, if there's a there's a a, um, a big company that wants to that you can work with, go work with them immediately. But I wanted to know why, and why sometimes it's uh, actually a good idea to take work from a smaller company. So. We talk about these things, we talk uh, about another type of deal that you might not know about towards the end um, that you should avoid. We talk about him recording vocals for Telephone in the beginning of his career. That's hilarious, but uh, we talk a lot, We not a lot, but we do talk about how you can make a lot of tracks and how you can categorize your music in order to maximize your capacity and your productivity. If you like this podcast, guys, please go and follow it on whatever platform you're listening to it. If you followed it already, y'all are legends. I love you and salute you and you can go leave it a five star rating and a review. Um, this really helps also share it on, uh, far and wide on your socials. This really helps me. So without further ado, Jason Rudd, how you doing, buddy?
1: Doing all right. Coming live from Austin, Texas.
0: Oh man. I, I so, uh, as we, we spoke offline, I, uh, I encourage people to go to Dave Croft's interview to listen to all you, um, uh, because you really get into stuff like mastering and things that are really important that we will probably touch briefly today. but uh, I feel like there's um, I will leave a link in the show notes for that interview because that would be a great place to 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 know the fundamentals and who and and what you are who you are kind of thing um, but you have such a, um, Mm. you have such a community energy about you and you have so much of a bigger than you, bigger than life, bigger than you energy because we got to meet in real life, right? And, and right. a few times we met in PMC and, and you're this humble dude. And I didn't even, we, we sat in the same table and we were just like shooting the shit, talking about being a music whore. By the way, we can cuss here. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that's, that was, I am
1: a music slut.
0: Music slut. Yeah. (laughs) It was, uh, yeah, you you use the, 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 the term slut, but, um, but yeah, Jason presented himself as a music slut. (laughs) He didn't. didn't, So, I mean, like, to be honest, that's the type of people I'm, I'm kind of looking to hang, hang out around like people who, who, who love what they do, who put, all their efforts and love and, and blood, sweat and tears into the, into this craft, but also like, don't take it too seriously. So I think that's, uh, that, that'll be our rabbit hole today. And that'll be what we come back to because that's your, that's your energy. But I feel like let's, let's just, let's, let us give your story, uh, uh, briefly and then get into this good stuff.
1: Great. Um, I knew I wanted to be involved in music from, um, a very early age as a lot of you know, musicians and producers do. Um, I actually, this, so this is my story. Um, I got a toy piano and, and a sight reading of the pop hits of the day sort of book and began learning some songs on the piano and picking out melodies. And, uh, so I was raised by my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, and she thought musicians were bums. And I had no idea what I had waded into, but she actually dissuaded me away from musicianship for several years. And, um, so I skipped that sort of junior high era where a lot of kids get into band and thank God I did because Mm -hmm. I would not have stuck with it. Um, I found my way back into music through sort of a back door. Um, at age 15, I got a guitar and, again, started trying to figure it out on my own. And uh, at that point, my grandmother took pity on me and introduced me to one of my great uncles that uh, back in the in the old days, because we, we were from Fort Worth, Texas. We, we're five generations deep in Fort Worth. Uh, there was a time when my great uncle had opened for the Western swing great uh, Bob Wills. And so she took me to meet him and And uh, he he said, well, play me a song. And I I played him a Metallica song. And he looked at me kind of crazy as somebody that came up on Bob Wills would upon hearing a Metallica song for the first time. Mm. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, how many more of those do you know? And I played a couple more and he's like, You need a real guitar, and you need lessons. And I was like a little taken aback, you know. But um, the man bought me a proper guitar that day, and enrolled me in lessons with a guy, uh, Mark Sparky Mateka, who's for the past probably twenty years been the guitar player for Leonard Skinner. Wow. And so that's where I learned privately. I learned music, and and I said that about band because when I finally saw like a DCI performance, which is amazing. I'm like, I would not fit in there. And And if I had at a young age been told that that's what music is about, I would have bailed. Mm. Um, so that's that's how I got started in, in music. Um, I, I went to the University of North Texas myself for a year. I uh, found out how good those guys really could play. And that's where I made the decision. I wanted to be sort of on the back end. Oh, my God. Look oh, who there, came to a, see
0: there, us. There, you, you, you're me. not going to see this on Dave's uh, episode. Yo. I've checked out Dave's episode and there's <laughs> <laughs> there's no pit bull <laughs> in there. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. This has to be on YouTube. This has this, this is going on YouTube yes all right now okay. e- everybody who listens to this now. has to go on youtube there's a <laughs> it, just, whoa so, he, he jumps in on some of my calls That's, you know that was in <laughs> that was just like a, a a comic break to this heavy story <laughs> 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 wow
1: so uh I I got a a degree in music business and uh, found myself working in jingle studios. And I took one of the worst jobs that I think I might've covered this on Dave's, but I took a job that was full time in the nineties recording telephone on hold messages.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Uh,
1: But I looked at it like, Hey, this is my chance to learn um, how to record the human voice, which is, it's kind of hard. I mean, it's got a pretty wide dynamic range. There's so many different sounds. Um, It really gave me a chance to learn by ear how to match the mic to the performer and get that correct. Um, And I think that's a skill that has stuck with me. Um, And then in 1999, I applied for a job at First Comm Music as an assistant mastering engineer. And that's how I got my foot in the door over there i was actually um i and i still uh, I'll, I'll be bold enough to make this comment but um i think i'm the fastest editor in the west i think i can cut music faster than anyone else oh wow um and and uh that' sort of was was what paid my bills for several years at firstcom and uh so at firstcom but, but putting the the mastering and the audio part aside like i've got some really good stories and um, I was going to tell you this one story. Yes. So, um, Firstcom was founded by an entrepreneur, a guy named Jim Long, who's a very respected entrepreneur in this industry, um, and and has done a, a lot of great stuff for the industry. Um, he did not like me, <laughs> so. Um, I, I actually got, uh, um, in, in a court deposition once over some, some things, um, he, he actually, uh, started a lawsuit because he believed that he invented stems in the marketplace and to his credit, I think he might have been the first person to market a product that had remixable stems, um, and it was actually, it was on a CD, an audio CD. So you would pl- play the stems in one at a time
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then sort of sync them up. And so in this deposition, we're, we're they're asking me questions about whatever, you know, and, and our lawyer had, had prepped me, you know, answer things a certain way. And uh, then they asked me a question that no one had prepped me for. And the question was, are you aware of any preceding technology that covers this sort of um, intellectual idea? And I said, well, yeah. And the whole room stops and everyone's looking at me. And I'm just, you know, kid. I was like 24 years old or something. And the attorney asked me, what might that be? I said, "Well, that's cell sync recording." Les Paul had been to that in the fifties, and Jim Long threw his pencil and threw his hands in the air and started cussing and jumped up, walked out of the room, and we had to like reconvene the uh, uh, deposition after like a twenty-minute break. So, like that—that's some of the things that I've been through in this industry that you know, I think would, are a better story for your podcast.
0: Mm. Wow. Like, where do I start? So as, as we said, like, it's like, it's like a tree. We have so many branches we can, we can go on from this. And, and thank you for speaking so openly about, about that, that kind of, that, that area, because yes, like, I mean, this is not, uh, this is not an, uh, um, an area that I hear about every day. It's like more, more like uh, in podcasts. It's more like, how do you do it? How does, uh, how does this work? I mean, it's it's so interesting to um, to see how when somebody actually uh, um, talks, their to, uh, talks from knowledge, from truth, from from everything. It, it can completely uh, disrupt procedures. And, and the reason I'm saying that is because that's how I feel like m- where my careers have taken the best turns, where I wasn't aware of the questions that I've be- that I'm being asked necessarily, but I'm like, I'm a go there. Like I'm a trust and I'm a go there. Right. Um, And I feel like that's what you did. Right. In that moment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean,
1: I, um, did what I thought was the right thing to
0: do in that time and space. Yeah. Just tell the truth. And, and what do you feel like it led you that, that, that whole situation? I mean, like from learning business to actually experiencing the business side to experiencing the law side in a very, very early stage, like how, how did that, how did that inspire your career going forward? Uh, Well, it, it, it was pretty scary, honestly. And it, it made me
1: um, realize, like, you should kind of watch your mouth, you know, mm. <laughs> which is, I mean, that's fundamental life advice in, in any situation, you know. Um, it, and it just, it gave me a peek into the, the sort of higher level workings um, amongst all of the business owners and managers and sort of what, what puppeteers were actually at play within the industry mm. and, and where the, the power was sort of located. Um, so it, it helped me sort of learn where my place in the pecking order was and to uh, kind of mind it a little bit.
0: Yeah, so that that begs the question: What is the top of this pyramid, and what where 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 are you now?
1: You know, it's funny um, when I started in this industry, there were a lot of medium sized companies that were making a lot of money, and uh, in the late '90s and through the aughts. Um, a lot of purchases happened and a lot of the publishing entities traded hands. And now the end result is that a lot of those mid tier companies are owned by publishing arms of major labels. But when I started in this, in this industry, it was not that way. Mm-hmm. So, for example, like um, First Com was an independent organization. Um, Killer Tracks was an independent organization, and I guess they got bought by BMG. Uh, and then at some juncture, First Com was purchased by BMG as well. Then uh, at another juncture later, all of those assets were purchased by Universal Music Publishing. Um, First Com and, and um, Killer Tracks remained separate companies for, Almost two decades uh, until two years ago, they decided to merge them into what is now Universal Production Music. Um, Warner Chapel Music had some of its material has roots in the 615 Music Library, which was started out of Nashville um, by um, Randy. Oh my God. I hope he doesn't see this podcast and see that I forgot his name.
0: Shout out to Randy. <laughs> Uh looking him up. We gotta look him up. Watchler. <laughs> Randy Watchler. The, this, uh, don't worry, it'll be edited to a short piece where it'll just sound like you know him. Don't worry. I got you. Perfect.
1: Yeah. So uh, yeah, six six fifteen uh was, was originally, you know, founded by Randy Watchler, who is uh now um running um eleven one music uh with his son and and super nice people great company um but a lot of these um larger publishing arms of majors they all have a toe in production music now and now it's become an arms race which is a a, a new thing in the past few years um because you, you got to con- I mean, how many copyrights does Warner Chapel hold? I really don't know the answer. Um, Universal production music has to be 400,000 titles, maybe half a million. Um, People say that APM has over a million copyrights. How does a small tier company this year break into that? Uh, I mean, I'm actively doing it and I'm still not sure if I know the answer. Um, I know that uh, over the past two years, we've built level 77 from a spark into a full roaring fire. Um, And we were very proud last spring when, or sorry, spring of 2023, we were very proud when we crossed 10,000 works. I mean, that's that's a lot of music. Um, I think the upside for a company like us is that. All that music hasn't been ran through, you know, <laughs> uh, and and it's been produced in the past two years, you know, whereas some of the larger publishing companies, they, they may have massive holdings, but that's music that was produced in the aughts or in the 90s or even in the late 1980s. So, how many viable copyrights do those larger publishers have? I don't know. That's really the question of of the hour, though. Um, and so that that's where we're at is trying to compete against them in in almost a, a David versus Goliath kind of um, approach.
0: Wow. Okay. That uh, there's, there's so ma- there are so many places we can go from here, but. Today, you see, like a lot of uh, even in PMC, there's a lot of meetings of like smaller labels with a a uh, Warner Chapel or Universal or whatnot. They want to be um, they want to be sub published. Why would a company want sub publishing? And also, you know, let's take it to even Dan Graham's book. Like he says, well, if you're uh, if if a label has uh, connections, has Universal sub publishing them, then it's a good thing then um my question to you is like what does what does it mean for a label to for a label to be um to to have their catalog sub-published with a universal or warner chapel or whatever that's a great question
1: and that's i think something that a lot of people don't understand the value of or the importance of or what the trade-off is that they're giving up um And we actually at level 77 we've even had an offer on the table to place our material with one of the larger publishers who um out of respect to them i I don't want to mention them um, but we have a very good relationship with them even still in fact we uh also do some custom work for them uh, and they're they're a, a great label we chose to strike out with on our own with a, an independent path. Um, was it the wise decision? I hope so. Time time's going to tell. Um, but for a small label like us that holds 10,000 copyrights, or I think right now we're probably closer to 15,000 because we, we are still aggressively growing the catalog and we are acting as a sub publisher as well uh, here in the States for um, other libraries internationally here's the long and short of it it's all about that sales team
0: mm.
1: and a company like universal has a sales team that is well defined and is very strong um these are people that that have done customer research and market research they know who the customers are um, they know where to find new customers. They have goals that they have to meet in terms of how many new customers they have to find, um, how many existing blanket licenses they need to renew. They have a a goal for how much needle drop business they need to bring in for the people that um, for the clients that would prefer a single use license instead of a blanket or a production blanket. So all those things are like predetermined, and those salespeople have to meet goals, or they get in trouble. Um, And and it's uh, it's it's a it's a tough game. Though um, I have nothing but respect for production music salespeople because uh, it's hard, and you know, frankly. How do I say? Let me think of how to say this. Like, if you're that good, maybe you should be selling high-end luxury cars or something where there's like a lot larger um, price tag for you to calculate your commission off of. Um, so there's there's a fine balance for those companies to where they they need to hire really good salespeople, but you know not so good that they're going to train them and have those salespeople leave but it's that, it's that large sales arm that makes it compelling. So what happens is if a small company like mine does a deal with a large company, that's one of the, the publishing arms of one of the majors, um, they are going to, you're going to split revenue with them it is a normal deal. Um, and I think that of course everybody's negotiated their own deals but generally a lot of them are 50-50 to to probably oversimplify it so um, if i place my catalog with one of those larger companies my hope is that their sales team will be putting my material out in front of clients you know my hope is that their uh, curation team will be putting my material on playlists and, and, um, including it on their, their search requests they get from their clients. You know, that's the, that's the thing you're sort of hoping for. So it's just simple as, you know, you can, you can have a personal pizza and you can have a hundred percent of it, or you can have half of a New York pie, you know, and that's a different amount of food and you have to be okay with the fact that they're going to get 50% and you're only going to get 50%. And if someone so if someone has a 50% deal with you and then you sign with another company then then that person's getting 25%. So the the margin gets smaller and smaller for the little people. Yeah. But that's that's what the deal is why you would want to place your library with one of the majors is that You get a lot more exposure. You get um, included in their their larger blankets, uh, which they may have with a lot of good broadcasters. Um, That's the ideal. Um, I I think that now, having said that, with the downside is um, all of those majors put out a glut of music, like they may put out, you know, some of them are so big, they put out in a month, what, what my whole annual production plan is. Um And it can be easy to get pushed down in that whole game and not have your material uh, reach the intended uh, audience. Mm. So it, it, it could work both ways, you know, having that, that, uh, distribution deal with, with a major now that's, I'm oversimplifying, you know, distribution and that's also putting aside international distribution, uh, which is a whole nother topic. Mm. And it's the one that it seems everybody wants to talk about the most in this industry. Um, but, uh, yeah. That's my take on it. I think, did I steer around the question at least? Man,
0: yeah, 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 100%. And yeah, d- and international distribution, I'm going to put a, a little bookmark on that. I wanted to ask you, so um, you were talking about uh, types of blankets. What, um, I mean, as somebody with almost 15,000 tracks in their, in their catalog, what do... Deals for you look like. I mean, why would a company do a blanket? Why would a what? What's a production blanket? What does it mean? That, uh, uh, why would you do a production ba- blanket versus a blanket? What's what's uh, if you can get into that?
1: Those are those are great questions. Um, when people talk about a blanket license, um, what that means is uh, essentially if you're a company and let's say uh for the sake of the example let's say you are a regional cable television provider like a charter or um spectrum type company in a in a small market or or even a medium sized market um you're going to do a lot of production um for your various programming various types of programming um, f- You're going to do advertising spots. You're going to do some promos. Uh, You will have to replace music on occasion for stuff that licenses have been pulled. Uh, There's a lot of different scenarios where that cable TV provider will need music. So what they do is they'll guesstimate how much music they need and come to a, a production music provider like us. And we will negotiate together on what a price would be for them to uh, essentially have access to the whole library and, and use as close as they can to what they've promised you know their level of usage is. So let's say, for example, they, they may say, well, we need to use, you know, 500 queues a year. And you negotiate, well, okay, for 500 queues, um, and, and it's broadcast, you know, we would want this much money. And so let's say that cable provider says, okay, great, let's do that. That's a blanket license. Um, so they're supposed to report their usage to us and to the PROs as well. And that's what helps get the writers paid. Um, and that's basically that. A production blanket is basically the same concept but for a specific production like a film short or a feature film or a documentary or whatever let's say you're going to do a a documentary uh uh about surfing and so you know you call up the the production music company and say, well, we're, you know, we're going to do an hour long documentary about the soul of the ocean. And, you know, we'll need 45 minutes worth of beds. Then we would be doing a production blanket based on that. Um, what was the this third part to your question though?
0: No, it's, it's, it's you're on the money. I feel like that's, that's what, uh, that's what uh, I've asked. And also, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm thinking about like Netflix, Amazon, all these little uh, smaller companies, but that sounds like every, every movie has its own budget, right? So they have their own blanket licenses, right? Like within the movie. Uh, so every movie has a different budget and a different uh, blanket license as well.
1: You can think of like if it's uh, X size of a movie, then there's going to be a percentage of that budget. That's going to be allocated for music. Yeah. And, and then, and it works from the, from the top down. So the first thing they're going to do is, well, what are the, the three or four key scenes in this movie that we need music for that have to be good quality, expensive, well-known music. Let me, let me retract the word good quality, because what we do is every bit as good a quality as the majors. Mm. But uh, I think, Maybe well known would
0: be yeah. the
1: better thing to say. Yeah. For example, let's say they're doing a a, a war movie and they want to use a Rolling Stones track. Well, I don't know what a Rolling Stones license costs, but I guarantee you, it's more than. It's not a part of bucks. a blanket
0: license. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's it's going to be yeah. a chunk of that budget, you know. Yeah. So they'll populate those scenes with with really expensive commercial music. And then they move down a tier like, well, you know, we need a um, orchestral piece for this one scene or we need we need. Here's what will happen. Actually, so let's say there's a, a club scene. We need a punk track. Well, they may not want to pay for the Sex Pistols license or or for. Um, I'm old, so that's my wheelhouse for a good punk man. Forgive me. They <laughs> Maybe are I should have. The young kids, I should have chosen blink one eighty two or something I don't know
0: you can go you can go throughout the generations. <laughs> right. doesn't matter though like yeah what whatever but, uh, blink so, one eighty two uh, you want a punk you want punk for that ce- specific scene
1: yeah so may, so you may check on a, a a the rate to license the sex pistols or a clash tune and find out it's a little expensive yeah. so that's where you can go to an independent composer or a production house or a production music library. And you can get a good quality punk track that's gonna sound period authentic and is gonna have the right vibe for the scene. And it's gonna be a lot more affordable. And then you fill in the cracks. Well, there's gonna be bumpers and segues and different things throughout the movie. And you don't wanna pay tons of money for that. So that's where we really can help is you can use a whole lot of little bits of our music and that way, the, the overall sound of the music throughout the movie sounds, it, it sonically, is a good quality. Mm. And then when you get to the important scenes where that Rolling Stones track plays, it, it really pops. Mm. Um, another situation where a filmmaker may like production music is, let's say, in the... In the, the the process of the storytelling, um, it may be important for the story that the music not detract from the story. So you may not want to use a Clash or a Sex Pistols tune. You may want it to be like a lot more generic punk rock tune, maybe even with without vocals. And that's where production music can help you is because everything we do... We do it with the vocal, we do it without the vocal, we give you the stems, right. you know, whatever you need. Um, and that way, the music can serve the story, but stay in the back and let the narrator tell it. Mm. So that that's kind of the, that's the crux of it.
0: Wow. Thank you so much for this. This has is, this is, uh, shed a lot of light for me, and I'm sure for people who are listening. Another thing we had in our... Uh, 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 our mastermind uh, is because you do custom work. I I'd love to hear your opinion uh, about um, um, labels or companies buying catalogs and, 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 and how that works. I would love to know, but before that, I wanted to ask another question about sub publishing. So like, okay. let's say I am uh, level 77 and now you've just sound, uh, you've just, uh, uh, um, you've just, you've just, uh, signed with a with a with one of the big three, okay. Um, I want I want to ask. So, do you still have your sales te- team? Is that is your team still affect? Uh, so yeah. So you're. Um, he's doing a no with his head. To, and uh, if somebody's listening, most of the people are listening. So like they have their team and they pitch all your stuff, right? Like everything goes through them. And I know that another thing with, uh, uh, sync bigger with, um, the big three is that, um, there are deals where they don't pay sync fees to, is that, is that another thing? Like, because we were talking about, uh, um, the downside of it. So, um, uh I would love for you to expand on these things, and was this a reason why you uh chose to stay independent?
1: Um, let me think of where to 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 tear into that there's a lot of rotten deals that are going around the industry, and i I don't out of an abundance of caution that I learned very early on yeah. in my age twenty four I, I will bite my tongue about it a little bit. But yeah, there's there are uh, production companies uh, that are um, trying to find ways to maximize their profits at the expense of composers. Um, and there's a lot of it going on. Um, there are companies trying to build their own internal catalogs to completely circumvent our industry, um, which is something that I'm just... I'm kind of morally opposed to. Um, And I think it's going to backfire on them in the long run because, well, I mean, if we, okay, so I can, I could probably talk about um, meta or Facebook building their own library, you know, so they have on hand a lot of music and they don't have to do the traditional um, cue sheets and reporting and, and all that that comes with it. They just basically will do a work for hire, you write for them, you sell them the track, you take your money, you walk away. Um, some of those will buy out your publishing, some will buy out your writer's share. Um, if, if I were a composer in that situation, I would be mindful of that. And I'm not saying I wouldn't do it. I would happily do it. Like if if, uh, if a standard rate for a song is going to be, I don't know, let's put a figure on like a thousand bucks, you know, that, that a composer is going to get paid. Well, if they're going to want my publishing and my writer's share, then the fee at a minimum doubles in, in my view. And, and I would hope that a lot of production music composers would understand that they have the power to do that. They they have the power to say, well, if I'm not going to get any back end, then you need to pay me on the front end. And that's a, I think that's a perfectly fair ask. The other thing is when when someone is buying out my rights like that, I won't lie. I'm not going to write my best material, you know. Mm. <laughs> uh,
0: big and, and that's big.
1: That doesn't mean I won't write good material. I, yeah. I would I would write material that. Is of the level of quality that's appropriate for the job, um, but like my A-list stuff, my really good tunes, I'm gonna save those for a situation where I am receiving that appropriate.
0: Um, it's skin in the game. It's skin in the game. Yeah. Like I mean, it's it's a hundred percent. And and the reason I'm asking you this is because yeah, I've I've seen deals with buyouts where I mean. They they buy the track out. You still get um, you get get back end, but you don't get sync fees. That happens a lot. Okay. I mean, well,
1: that's kind of the the traditional production music model. Yeah. Um, and, and honestly, that's the um the model that during my entire time I worked at at Firstcom or or Universal. Um, those were the only deals that I could personally write. Th- yeah. There were other deals that would happen. Um, but those were done by, um, people that were higher up than I was 90% of that business though is built on that model where, um, the company, the production music company will pay the composer up front and in exchange for that, they get the master and they get the publishing but the composer retains the writer's share. Yeah. And that's a good deal for a composer like, uh, um. One of one of my favorite composers that I work with, I won't call him out, but he writes a song a day. Mm. And are they all bangers? A lot of them are, you know, um, but not all of them, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, and then are some of them absolute magic? Yes, some of them definitely are. And I think he or she would retain those uh,
0: maybe it's a (laughs) non-binary
1: thank you forgive me I
0: (laughs) shit we're gonna get cancelled after this
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah he she or they would honestly need to keep that A level of material for premium uses and then the bulk of their just daily work you know yeah sell the publishing on that get it out there and get it making money yeah, uh, that's that's kind of my approach. Yeah. Uh, now at level 77, we're doing a a mixture of the two styles. Uh, the other style being um, a, a sink split deal where, you know, someone comes to us with finished material. You know, I'm not going to give them any money up front, but we will share the the uh, sink fees. We will share the publishing and then they will still retain their full uh, writer share yeah. some composers think that's more fair um if the composer thinks that's the more fair approach i'm happy to do that deal with them mm. you know i personally think it's kind of a wash it is but that's just my opinion
0: you know mm. what do you mean though um,
1: i i would be happy to do either deal either yeah. deal's fine and in the end you're going to make about the same amount of money
0: Mm, um, there you go that's something- the, that's the important thing i feel like that's the important thing you're touching on that like i've uh, and just from personal per- perspective and story uh, i've spent way too much time thinking about that kind of stuff like to be if to be completely honest just like because of that artist diva mentality and because of all these things that that yeah. come with being a composer and not knowing the landscape good enough um and and saying stupid shit as well on the way. Like I'm not n- not gonna lie. Like I've said a lot of stupid shit. I've acted uh, in a lot of outrageous, dumb ways, straight up. But I, I feel like I-, I feel like that's that's where it, it it that's where the the rubber meets the road. When you're saying like, yeah, you know, like you can get the sink fee. Okay, you can get the you you can get all of that and all of that, and it'll be around the same thing. Like. <laughs> I've, I've also heard the approach of, you know, like, if you don't get the sync fee, one good promo can get you all this money and blah, blah, blah. But I mean, with uh, uh, what you're saying, I also feel it in the way things are today. There's such a huge amount of music out there that the chances that every one of these songs that you've done gets a, a promo or one of these th- or, or, or something like that. Would sometimes amount to what you are paid for the album upfront. So I mean, like it, it's kind of it's kind of a chicken or egg kind of thing, and it's yeah. Uh, it, it's yeah, it's, it, it's just like my, right. my opinion about that.
1: Well, what, you know, one angle to look at it is that they are all essentially lottery tickets,
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and yeah, so. You know, you're, you're you're either buying short odds or long odds. Oh my god, so you
0: good! You know
1: those those sinks split things can really pay off. They they really can, but they're they're really rare. Mm. Um, whereas the the small here's the thing: like people don't realize about this industry, mm. man the the average needle drop license is closer to like two hundred dollars. People get the stars in their eyes like, oh, well, you know, this this trailer paid seven thousand dollars. Yes, I've Mm -hmm. had plenty of tracks that I've worked on collect that type of fee. But I've had thousands and thousands and thousands collect two hundred bucks. Yeah, that's the reality of it. So um, is that lottery ticket, you know, is, is it? a lower value lottery ticket that's going to have a better payout or is it a high value lottery ticket that is longer odds? It's your call. You decide it. it, It's all a wash to me. What, what I will say is there's, I found out recently, there's a a third type of deal and this one I I would like to actually warn people about. Mm. I, I ethically don't feel good about it. And maybe I'm wrong, but, um, it's uh what do they call it? It's a reverse, so, reverse something deal. But here's how it works. You take that uh, publishing deal that I originally spoke about, where the production music company is going to pay you up front, and in exchange for that, they're going to get the publishing. They're going to get the master. That way, they're going to own the track in perpetuity. They'll have control for one-stop licensing. Like, that's their... That's the whole point of that business model, honestly, is that it, it gives the company the freedom to make deals with customers and not have to go call a composer and be like, oh, is it okay if we license this for this particular use? You know, that sort of thing. But this this reverse deal that I've heard about recently that some people are offering is essentially the publishing deal, but you get no money up front what happens is you basically give them the music and you have a predetermined threshold for payment. As the track earns money, you build up until you hit your threshold and then you get paid. I I don't know. I just don't know about this approach. Maybe some people might have some other opinions on it. Maybe some people could educate me on it, but Mm. It seems like if, you know, I I threw out just for math, a thousand bucks a song. Um, So what this reverse deal would be, instead of me paying you a thousand dollars, I would give you nothing. As the track earns a thousand dollars, you eventually will get that thousand dollars. But once it's earned that thousand dollars, that's the cap. Oh, wow. So I'm afraid that some people may confuse that with a sync deal thinking, oh, well, the track's earning money. I'm getting paid as the track earns money. Mm. But that's not the same deal.
0: Mm. Wow. So
1: I don't know. I, I, I would just not be know leery about, about, about that.
0: I did not know about this. Yeah.
1: It's, it's, it's a new way to do it. Wow. Now, if I were a small publisher and I wanted to aggressively grow my catalog from a business standpoint from a publisher... It's pretty shrewd. I mean, because I could go out and write a thousand deals and I don't owe anybody any money. Right. And all I have to do is focus on making that money and repaying them. But that's, I guess, in my eyes, that's almost like taking a business loan from the composers instead of from a bank. <laughs>
0: you know? Yeah. It's super weird. I mean, but I feel like a lot of the deals are structured around writers getting back end. So how does that affect the back end, that reverse deal?
1: Well, it would, I think in that scenario, it would function like a normal publishing uh, deal so that when the track um, is, is aired and broadcast that you would still collect from your PRO.
0: Hmm.
1: Uh, in addition to the front end, because because the traditional publishing deal is, you know, if, if and again, I'm not saying I pay $1,000 for all tracks, but using that for the math, you, you know, if I would normally pay 1000 for a track, you would, or, you know, the composer would still collect their their broadcast performance royalty. I think this reverse deal works the same you just don't get the front money and Mm. the track has to earn it on its own.
0: Mm. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, like, it's, it's just a different, different type of, of, uh, of viewing, viewing that, that kind of thing There there was a man, there was one thing that I, I I didn't write, I didn't write down that we, we wanted to circle back to, and uh, I'm kind of blanking on, but, um, uh, um, you were talking about quantity and quality. How do you think today, like in in this day and age, how um, if you were a composer, let's say you have 50, 100 tracks in your catalog, like in your BMI, like you're starting to get your footing. What uh, do you think is the best approach to to, to, to go into this industry? Like, is it really like the one track a week? Is it like the numbers game? Is it the, 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 the the 50 bangers a year? Is it like, what's your, what's your kind of, um, approach if you were a composer right now doing this, uh, grind?
1: I would, so I, I like Dan Graham's concept. I, I would, I would up, from 52 cues, I would I would be more like 200 cues, honestly. First and foremost, like wow. I would I would go for tonnage, um, but you also have to have some more premium products. So I I really would divide it into levels. Um, I would be as a composer. Well, first of all. I got a comment on just how spoiled we are nowadays and, and I've been in the production music industry long enough to have seen this come to, um, there was a time when VSTs were not that good. There was a time when plugins were not that good. Um, and in the modern era the virtual instruments are impeccable like cheap virtual instruments sound amazing logic or pro tools or any of them any of the digital audio workstations come with free virtual instruments that sound better than the premium ones did 15 or 20 years ago so we we all have that working to our advantage we all have great string sounds. We all have great drum sounds. We all have very convincing brass sounds. If you'll just take the time to program it, you know, it can be very convincing. Like, I wouldn't program a, a horn section, but I would program a, a tenor, an alto, a berry, and a trumpet. And just that alone will give you so much realism in a mix. So... I personally think it's wise to use those tools to create as much content as you can and do as good a job as you can mixing and mastering, but you know, create a, a sizable asset. Um, and then I would focus on some more premium stuff. And in that regard, I would do a much smaller selection of stuff that you can't reproduce with virtual instruments. Mm. And that is live horns, live drums, live strings. Um, Just the sound of humans playing in a room together is something you can't synthesize. I mean, no matter how good you are, if you're around four of your peers, you're going to try harder. You know, you're, you're going to focus deeper and, Honestly, I think that that our just our vibration once our vibrations mesh. I think that intellectually it raises our abilities. Um, so I'm a big believer in live musicianship and, and and producing records with live players, and I think they're superior when you do. And uh, I would I would be spending time. You know, in the bedroom studio, cranking out some really good stuff using virtual instruments, but I would be writing material and tracking live in a proper studio and then maybe augment that. Maybe you do an indie pop track uh, and you get a great band take with drums and keys and guitar and a vocal. Well, You know, you could take that home and you can add virtual strings to it. You know, or you could pull up the Mellotron strings patch to give it a Beatles sound, or whatever you want it to do. But that—that that would be my my thing. Is I would try to, I would try to hit different price points. I guess would be a mm. way to to say it.
0: Wow, um, that is does that advice that is a work fresh for answer. everybody?
1: I, I don't know. Maybe some people would prefer to just do, you know, thirty percent of their output and have it all be premium or maybe they'd rather have 90% of their output and have it all be VST, I don't know, It to each his own. Yeah. But I would definitely be using a little bit of each.
0: Yeah. It, it, it brings me to, to, to think about, like, you know, I, f- I feel like knowing one's strengths is one of the most important things here. And also, like, being able to say – Hey, um, yeah, this is what I can do really fast. Like I can, I can crank one of these a day to be, and to be honest, like for me, let's say it's, for me, it's vocals. Like I can do them real quick, real fast and real crispy and I can do, I, I can easily do one, two a day. Of these Like if I'm, if I'm being honest, like I, sometimes I have a label that sends me, sends me stuff and goes like, yeah, you can get on, get on a, a, each of these tracks. And then I just crank two tracks and I have 50% in the track. Like, it's just, uh, the, that's, that's the, the, the question I feel like that comes into, into my head that people need, have to ask themselves. Like if you're really good at uh, making hip hop beats, that's cool. Like make it as your tier one thing. But, you know, like uh, maybe have uh, a deal with with some other label that pays you up front and then you can actually record the uh, record strings on it or, you know, like record yeah. some funk guitar on it or have something like that where you. Uh, um, you're working in tears and it also keeps the your job less boring for sure. like it's it's uh, uh, we are all machines to some capacity. like you can say all you want like it's art and all that kind of stuff. but it is in the end of the day, like I want to turn this into my job. I want to like for me, it's it's something I want to be serious of and have it as uh, uh, instead of my instead of a shitty nine to five uh, uh, bar job. Uh, or whatever, you know, like, so that's, that's kind of the way that I, that I uh, uh, see what you explained and I really resonate with it and I'm going to take action on it actually because you've, you've really lit some, lit some, uh, um, light bulbs in my head. So I'm actually going to go back and listen to it. And I, I recommend the uh, listeners, the listeners do that as well.
1: Um, uh, there's a gentleman, Ira Glass, and uh, I think he's like a radio host of a um, pretty well-known radio show. But he 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 stuck in my brain because he and and I'm going to murder what he said. He said it very eloquently, so I'm going to mangle it, but I'll I'll get as close as I can. And he said that when you're starting out, it's wise to do as much work as you can and the fact is you're going to know that it's falling short. You're going to understand like, you know, that your work is not as good as the people that inspired you. And that's okay. Like keep moving forward, keep suffering through that because what it is is that that alone is the sign that you have good taste, which means that as you continue to do the work, you're going to develop the skills. You're going to develop the insights. And you're going to, over time, close that gap. And uh, I, I thought that was beautiful advice. So that's why I'm like of the mindset, well, you you know, you should write a lot and, and write at different tiers so that you get lots of practice in and lots of reps.
0: Mm. Um, yep. well, yeah, I hope man. that advice it's- helps somebody. It's, it's going to help somebody because it's a direct continuation of last week's episode uh, of uh, Gallo, a dude who, who did um, promos for, like he did um, broadcast for the NBA. Like he would write, mix and master a track in a day every time, like because he, there was games, there were games and they would come up to him every day and he would basically work for them. Um, and he speaks about how that, how instrumental it was in his development as an artist, right? Like being, having these, having these constraints and, 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 um, and clear boundaries to work within is, is just, uh, a huge, huge, huge key. I feel like, yeah, man, it's uh, there. There's so much, uh, so much light you shed on this for sure. For me.
1: Gallo, I, I, I will say like, he, he does epitomize that because, um, that is a driven and hardworking man. And, and I'll only know this because we, we have an album uh, with him on it. And it's excellent. And it's probably like his normal tier stuff, you know? <laughs> like, I don't even think it's his premium stuff. Yeah. And it's really, really good. Yeah. Um, so he, he clearly is someone that epitomizes that. He puts in the work and he has mastered his craft and it shows.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. I I, like something in me resists and envies it at the same time, like this amazing, this insane. I thought that I had like extreme work ethic. And then I see people like, I'm like, nah, I got so much more to walk. Like I have so much longer to walk on this path. Um, Man, I feel like this is, this is going to give people so much to think about. I'm well, we're gonna have to have a round two about trailerization because I feel like this is just uh, we've packed this episode with so much, man. Uh, I'm I'm so grateful awesome. for you and for meeting you again, and 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 I feel like we're we're definitely gonna do one when we meet in person next time. But uh, I'm I'm definitely putting in mind like a round two about trailerization with you if you'd be interested and. Uh, I want to ask you before you before we we get off. What uh, what what are you grateful for?
1: Oh man, I I am I have so much gratitude. I wouldn't even know where to start. Um, I, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for all the problems I have first and foremost that have kept me humble and that have made me work with difficult things and think things through and figure them out organically. Um, so, you know, I'm grateful for that. I have so many blessings that I'm, I'm grateful for. I, I mean, I have a, a, a matching pair of ears that um, function fairly well. And I have taken, I, I have mistreated them so thoroughly. <laughs> and, and the fact that they still function is great. Um, but I, I, I'm very grateful for the, for the path that, that I've been able to lead. I'm grateful that I haven't gotten a lot of things in life that I thought I wanted. Um, I thought I wanted to be a rock star. Um, and now that I'm a middle-aged man, thank God I never had fame or money. Because I would not have known how to manage either one. Um, but... I did land on a way to literally get paid to listen to music. How lucky can a man be? Well, I mean, what else can you ask for?
0: Yeah, man. You know, I spend and, the day in
1: a studio. Yeah, um, I, 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 I get to, you know, be a music slut, and you know, when I'm burnt out, I just. I put the pencil down and I crank the monitor up and and abuse my ears some more, you know, and listen to new music and um, or old music. I I have uh, I have a collection of music that I have everything that hit the Billboard charts from two thousand seven all the way back to eighteen ninety seven or so. Wow! So I like I'm not kidding when I, when I say like I I listen to almost anything. That's amazing.
0: That's amazing, uh, man. I'm I, I feel so juiced up after this to make uh, to make a lot of music and to <laughs> and just just go back and listen to this. And uh, I'm grateful for you today, man. I'm grateful for you, and I'm grateful for the beautiful energy you bring to rooms because, you know, like your energy is. You're talking about yourself being a middle aged man, but you have the the energy of a of a young person, like. I would not. I would not be taken aback if you would have told me, like if if somebody would have told me you're a rock star, or somebody who 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 does a show every day. Like you, you just have to have a very effortless energy about you, and um, I really commend you for that. And I feel like yes, you 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 definitely found what brings you and the ones around you light. So I'm grateful for you and for for you coming on this podcast.
1: I, and and I am so grateful for you as well. I knew just the, 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 the instant we spoke the, that you had a wonderful uh, frequency that you were vibrating at. And I was going to be very harmonious with you and, and have a wonderful conversation. And we did. In fact, I think we spoke for 45 minutes and barely talked about music.
0: Yeah, an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, man. Thank you so, so much for coming on. Yo, thanks for listening to Sync Jams. Again, if y'all want to support this podcast, go ahead. Follow the podcast, which is a huge thing. It also lets you know when episodes are coming out. Share the podcast on your socials. Share the posts on socials. And let me know what you think about the podcast as well. Hit me up on IG. Hit me up wherever. And I'm sending you all the love. And... See you at the next Sync Gems episode. Peace!